0: Good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> the nice thing about preaching on about food on Thanksgiving weekend is that your sermon doesn't need an introduction. You are all probably already thinking about food. And if you weren't thinking about food on your way into church this morning, seeing the collection of food for SOS or that our celebration of communion was in the bulletin has probably done it. We've been thinking about justice together this fall, in particular thinking about justice in our county. And thinking about food might be one of the best ways for us to think about justice. Food is something that we all need every day. Fasting is a meaningful spiritual practice because when we do it, we encounter ourselves beyond our needs. But while we all need food, we have very different abilities to access food. When I moved from rural Ohio to Ann Arbor 15 years ago now, I was shocked at how much more accessible good food was to me in this liberal city than it had been in the conservative village that I'd come from. Of course, part of why food is accessible to me here is that I'm wealthy enough to buy it, even when it is expensive. And in addition to the abundance of very good grocery stores and expansive farmers markets, I did also notice the prices when I moved here. You can buy more higher quality, more ethically produced food here, but you do pay for it. The justice questions are very easy to see in this simple story, and I haven't yet invoked the urban food desert. That lack of any kind of grocery store in a lower income, often black or brown neighborhood in a larger city. Food is something that we need every day, but food is also very meaningful to people. Many people shared a meal this weekend with family, many people ate food that was culturally important to them. More people traveled to do this at this time than any other time this year. Coming together around food at Thanksgiving is also a time when family disagreements and dysfunctions can be at their peak. Food can raise a whole set of questions of how to talk to people we don't agree with. A meal with friends or strangers, as in today's scripture, can give us an imagination of community beyond family. It's one of our best images of being the church. Finally, food raises a whole set of questions about the environment, sustainability, simplicity, climate climate change, this list goes on. When I taught college at Bluffton University, I taught a course called Christian Values in the Global Community. One of my favorite assignments was to have students submit our favorite recipe with a history of at least two of the ingredients that traced their source. My goal was to have them choose something like salt and realize how something very simple and basic could have a very complicated history. I don't think we nurture the imagination to examine our lives in this kind of detail. And I was typically very disappointed by these papers. People chose the simplest ingredients, the ones with the least complicated history, and wrote relatively banned and grammatically poor answers. (laughs) Hopefully this exercise works better as a sermon illustration than it did in the class. Any of these moments could serve as the entirety of a sermon on a day when I'm not aiming to talk for a long time. But the one that I want to focus on for just a moment was something said by Jeff Liebman, a Harvard economist who spoke in the poverty Solutions speaker series that I facilitate each fall. Jeff ran a program called Chelsea Eats during the height of the pandemic. Chelsea is a town just outside Boston with a progressive city manager. It's a place where many low income and minority people who work in service industries live. When the pandemic shutdown occurred, many of these people lost work and income immediately. Thoughtful people knew that this was gonna be a bigger problem in Chelsea than some other places and arranged to have groceries available for pickup, food pantry style. They were completely overwhelmed by the demand. Business and the city ramped up distribution as fast as they could. They quickly realized that they were providing an absolutely necessary service. And that providing it was much more efficient than simply giving people to money, giving pe- giving money to people to shop at the grocery store would be. Rebuilding the distribution system that grocery stores already had built worked, but it was expensive and inefficient, so they pivoted. Instead of providing food, they signed people up for the Chelsea eats program and gave them debit cards. And, because when you give people a debit card, you learn everything that they spend it on, they learned that people spent the money to buy food and other necessities, and they spent it locally. The program kept people fed, and it also kept local businesses open. It was very successful. There's a good documentary of this program called Raising the Floor. There is a lesson here that has been present throughout our series this fall here at Shalom. The best solutions to many social problems are found at the societal level. The solutions to homelessness is housing and we need government to incentivize affordable housing in order to solve this problem. The solution to food insecurity is reliable access to food rather than a handout at a pantry. But the moment that was most interesting to me in Jeff's talk was when he was asked if there was a role for food pantries when money to shop at a grocery store is a much more efficient solution. He said, yes, there is, because there are always going to be people that society doesn't want to care for. There are always going to be people that politicians don't want to care for. This leaves a role for the church in the social safety net leaves a role for people of goodwill who want to do something now. And this is the lesson of today's scripture too. The banquet holder is happy to have a banquet for family and friends. But when the friends flake out, the banquet holder looks beyond family and friends to those who need food, to those whose society does not want to care for. Inclusion is the first lesson of this parable. The second lesson is abundance. The prepared banquet has more room than there are people who want or even need to come. Rereading this passage in preparation for this morning's sermon, I realized that feeding those who society does not want to care for is not a one-time thing for the banquet holder. The banquet holder gives up on those initially invited to the banquet. The banquet holder ends the parable with the statement, not one of those I had initially invited will taste a bite of dinner. Food becomes for the banquet holder a chance to also think about justice. Jesus parables are told to make us think and to keep thinking to build the imagination in us necessary to shape the future into a place where God's will reigns. I wonder what the future holds for the banquet holder, will they continue to hold banquets but focus now on including those who society doesn't want to care for. Or is the banquet holder even wondering about banquets in and of themselves. What would you do if you planned a banquet, a banquet so big you couldn't find enough people to eat all of the food, even once you'd invite everyone you could find. Would you plan a big banquet again next year, but try harder to find people to eat it? Or would you stop planning banquets? What would you do next? Any of you who have seen the movie Babette's Feast, where a cook who works for a group of older, very simple, very religious sisters, and spends her lottery winnings on one banquet and brings life back into a lifeless community, knows that the answer to this question is not simple. I imagine that some of you might also be checking your Bibles as I was in preparing this message. This somewhat angry statement, but I tell you not one of those I had initially invited will taste a bite of my dinner. Isn't the part of this parable that I remember easily from childhood. As I was writing, I noticed in that surprised, but not really surprised sort of way, that a common approach to this passage is to just leave out verse 24, ending with, go out and scour the side roads and the back roads and make them come in. I want my house to be full. Ending here retains the lesson to be inclusive as possible, to seek out inclusivity aggressively and compel involvement but it also stops short of some of the scorn for the rich that the banquet holder now has, and perhaps also some of the justice seeking change of heart. How we get our food, who has access to food, and how the food is being shared. These are all big questions, big questions that we could ask of ourselves every day, but questions that would probably exhaust us if we did ask them of ourselves every day. However, they are questions that we need to ask sometimes. The act of communion, of eating food that is real food, but which also symbolizes something greater is probably a good time to do this. One of the meanings of communion, which I like a lot, and which I learned from the Jesuits that I studied with in Chicago, is that every celebration of communion is connected to every other celebration. Because we are eating bread, which we name as the body of Christ, and because Christ has one body that is available to us regardless of time or place, in every geography and in every moment in history, each celebration is connected to each other celebration. This meal, is then an answer to these big questions, because it shows us that these questions are also one question, the question about how we should follow Jesus. Regardless of who we are, politician, economist, banquet holder, farmer, food pantry volunteer, grocery worker, cook, restaurateur, food critic, or compelled dinner guest, The question of how we should follow Jesus is a good question to ask. Thank you for listening.